I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor. From Dublin, we have Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And also down the line, we have Andrea Enria, who is the head of the European Banking Authority. This week, we'll be discussing the EBA's allegation that banks in the UK have made inadequate preparations for Brexit. Also, a look at Comets Bank as it trials artificial intelligence for its analyst reports. And finally, a look at Bank of America Merrill Lynch as it moves part of its operation to Paris. So let's go to our first story. And this is news that the European Banking Authority has described the preparations of banks in the UK, the City of London, as inadequate ahead of Brexit. Well, we're joined now by Andrea Enria, who is the head of the EBA. Andrea, thanks very much for joining us from Brussels this evening. Perhaps you could explain why you think the city is ill-prepared. What does it need to do more and what is exactly wrong with preparations? Well, first of all, let me say that our opinion is not addressed to the city. Our opinion is addressed to all financial institutions across the Union, in the U27 as well as in the UK. Indeed, let's say our message is that financial institutions need to take action and that the time is now. We had an opinion already in October last year, and basically we got feedback from supervisors across Europe that our message was not sufficiently heeded. Uh, so at this stage, we wanted to reiterate the fact that there is need for action now, especially because there is a risk that eventually we will have no ratified withdrawal agreement in time and the banks cannot rely on a hopeful outcome that everything will be sorted out. So that is the basis for our warning to the financial industry. And crucially, from your point of view, they cannot rely on a transition period that would start from next March. Well, that's a point which the EU institutions have made clear from the very beginning, that the transition agreement is, of course, a very welcome development in the negotiations, but until the whole withdrawal agreement is ratified, it cannot have legal force. So basically, the point is that institutions need to prepare also for the worst outcome. As we do in stress tests, we often you know, request to banks to prepare also for uh, negative scenarios, which are plausible, maybe not highly likely, but plausible, and that would carry risk. So that's the spirit with which we issued our opinion. Now, your view on this is in stark contrast, really, to the pronouncements that we've had from regulators in the UK, particularly the Bank of England and the Prudential Regulation Authority and the Financial Conduct Authority as well. They've gone out of their way to talk about a regulatory underpin, which is basically their jargon for essentially being happy to preserve the status quo arrangements 
during that transition period. Even if there is a, I suppose, dubious legal basis for that, they are happy, they say, to maintain that kind of underpin. Why is your view so different from their view? Well, first of all, let me say that I believe that there is a common view on the risks amongst all EU regulators, including the EU. As you correctly said, indeed there is a different view concerning the extent to which banks could rely on interim and temporary measures during the transition. That's a point on which, let's say, the positions are not aligned, to be honest. The key point is that at the EU level, uh, you would need to have probably legislative action. This legislative action would require agreements, uh, would require uh, probably lengthy negotiations processes. And at the moment, there is no clear signal that action in that space would be forthcoming. Let me also say that, for instance, for what concerns branches, the regulatory framework concerning branches is, for instance, that the national one is not harmonized, and it would be very difficult to have reassurance from potentially 27 different parliaments that the legislation would be changed to accommodate those different agreements. So we think it is our duty to warn banks that they should take all the possible actions to get prepared. A final question for you. Some commentators have suggested that your intervention at this stage and your view is not only being expressed for reasons of regulatory soundness, but is also a kind of politicised intervention that reflects the bidding, if you like, of the French and German political establishment, which are keen to see City of London operations move to Paris and Frankfurt. What do you say to those people who make that point? Yeah, I saw this point. Uh, I must say I was not particularly glad to see them. Indeed, our work is purely technical. We receive no political pressure whatsoever. We are taking no stance whatsoever about relocation of services. We are just telling banks that need to prepare to every possible outcome. And we think that this is the responsibility of regulators at this stage. And having the European institutions made clear that the final outcome will not be, let's say, uh, we cannot rely on the transition until the withdrawal agreement is ratified, actually. Uh, At this juncture, we still think that it is important to send a message to banks to prepare. And this is a purely supervisory, risk-oriented mechanism. We know that preparing entails costs for financial institutions, but we also think that we shouldn't put into jeopardy financial stability or the customer's interest because the financial industry is not willing to take up these costs. And I think at this point, we need to send this message. Very important message. Andrea and Ria, thank you so much for joining us. So let's go for a view on Andrea and Ria's thoughts on the EBA intervention to Laura in Dublin. You heard all of that. What do you make of it? So I think banks are very defensive about the level of planning and preparation they've undertaken ahead of Brexit. And they'd certainly be quite unimpressed to hear that they hadn't been doing enough and that they weren't prepared enough. The general view is, even though the EBA is saying, OK, you can't rely on any kind of a public sector deal to help you out here. From a pragmatic perspective, the stakes are so high that banks don't think that if they aren't operationally ready come March 2019 that everything is going to fall down. There's almost an element of it's so important that the public actors in this are going to have to help get them over the cliff. I think that that is kind of influencing how banks are actually doing these things. 
what they're very conscious of is not spending money that they don't need to. Brexit's going to be a very costly project for them anyway. Some of them are spending in the hundreds of millions on the Brexit preparations. So they really don't want to get down the road having to set up a whole lot of preventative things. And then there is actually a deal that means that they haven't got to make these really dramatic moves out of the city. So they're trying to hedge their bets as best they can while spending as little as they can. But there is certainly an underlying belief through that that if it all goes horribly wrong and if there isn't a deal, there will be some kind of a patchwork solution to get them over the hump because the idea that the international financial system just simply wouldn't work come the day after Brexit is just something which seems too bad to ever happen. So who's going to win in this battle then? Essentially, it's the EBA versus the Bank of England. So far, looking at the big institutions operating in the City of London... They seem to have basically done as little as they can, as you've been writing about for months now, with the support, really, of the Bank of England. But the EBA, representing the broader EU, is not happy about this. Is that going to lead to another migration of people and operations in the short term, do you think? I don't think so. I mean, the EBA can be unhappy about it, but there's not a whole lot that they can do about it. I mean, I guess at the very extreme level, they could try to do something in the next round of stress tests that punished banks for not being prepared enough and had a capital implication. But I mean, beyond that and beyond calling to public attention the fact that they would like more to be done, the EBA hasn't really got any power in this regard. All it can do is really make noise. And the most likely result of the EBA statements is that it does light some kind of a fire under the people who are actually doing the negotiations and concentrates minds on the need to agree something sooner rather than later, which is what the banks also want. So in that regard, the EBA's intervention might be helpful for the banks if it does become a catalyst for getting things moving more quickly, because there's been a constant frustration really about how little has been agreed. I remember asking a banker recently, what were the key uncertainties that still remained on the Brexit front? And he was like, well, can you tell me any of the key uncertainties that have actually been answered? And that is very much the view. So to the extent that this EBA intervention can prompt people to make decisions, can prompt the officials to move faster and give banks their own mark going forward, they might come to be grateful for it. Well, we're going to stay with Laura now for our second item, a look at Comets Bank and artificial intelligence. And this is news that Commerce Bank has been experimenting with AI in writing their research reports. Tell us more, Laura. What exactly is going on? What's happening is they're working with a third-party firm that they've invested in. And what they're trying to do is see whether AI can produce certain kinds of research reports around equities. Now, it's a fairly limited exercise so far. So what they're looking at is when a company produces earnings, analysts typically put out a fairly instant report saying company made this much earnings, they paid this much tax. It's a fairly brief and factual report. And what they're trying to see is if the AI would be able to replicate that in a way which was both faster, but which was also accurate and gave the right tone to the clients who would be receiving it. Now, Commerce Bank aren't the only ones looking at AI in research. So we spoke to several other investment banks as well, and they all said that they saw great potential for AI to be used in some areas of research because the banks are all trying to make research cheaper to create because they're coming under a lot of pressure since the introduction of MIFID 2, which makes it harder for them to bundle research with other services and has really made them focused on costs in the research area. Yeah, as you say, MIFID 2 has shaken up the whole realm of investor research. What Commerce Bank and any other bank could get through AI, though, at least at this stage, would be very low added value research, of course. Does this, though, longer term threaten the livelihoods of the best analysts in terms of genuinely intelligent research? 
At the moment, no one is talking about replicating 100% of what an individual analyst does. The idea is this could take away some of the more routine tasks from analysts. However, that can still lead to jobs being cut because if you have two people currently covering 10 stocks and you take away a lot of the routine work from both of them, then you may have a situation where with all of that routine work done by AI, you can have one actual person covering 10 stocks. So it's not about having no actual intelligent research analysts at all. It's about having fewer of them and having their work augmented by AI. In terms of the really conceptual stuff, I mean, I think it's kind of unlikely that we will have AI doing the really creative research anytime at all. But AI can also be used to source ideas from actual people for research. So you can have an AI or an automated engine which actually polls the clients on what kind of topics they would like to see research on. So in that sense, AI can assist in the generation of ideas as well. Well, let's just hope that there's no immediate read across from analyst research to journalism. Martin? Yeah, I mean, people talk about AI replacing journalists. I have to say that there's a strong chance that AI may be able to write better than quite a lot of analysts, given the quality of the output that they produce. I was once approached by a research house about whether I'd be interested in becoming their research editor because the quality of the writing produced by the analysts was so poor. They're looking for somebody to improve it. And I think that AI could well actually prove to be better at expressing the ideas that they produce. We've now alienated half our listenership, but never mind. Let's move on to our final topic of the day. Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Martin, is moving part of its trading operation to Paris with a new French country head as the person heading that. Tell us more about this. Yeah, so Bank of America has announced internally that it's appointing three senior bankers to positions in Paris, where it is going to be shifting hundreds of jobs to build up its sales and trading operations of its investment bank as part of its Brexit preparations. It says that Sanaz Zaimi, the bank's global head of fixed income currencies and commodity sales, is going to move to Paris and become the head of its French operation there. And a couple of other senior bankers in its fixed income operations in London are going to be moving over to be heads of fixed income currencies and commodity sales and FIC trading as well. And this is really the first names of people that we've had who are going to be moving to Paris as part of Bank of America's preparations. It comes as an important sign that the senior people are moving. We don't yet know how many, exactly how many people Bank of America plans to shift over to Paris, but it's refurbishing new offices that it has got in Paris in the 8th arrondissement, just near the Elysee Palace, actually, very near the FT's offices as well, which have got capacity for a 1,000 people. Now, that's an awful lot of people. But the bank says it hasn't decided how many people are going to be moving over, and it hasn't even started the individual conversations yet with bankers who might be asked to move yet. And the number, the exact number of how many move will depend on the outcome of Brexit negotiations between the UK and the rest of the EU, and also what regulators ask of the bank in terms of how many extra compliance and other types of back office staff they require to go along with the uh, traders. But it's clear that these preparations, which we've been writing and hearing an awful lot about, are now starting to be put into action by the banks. And I've just got to say a final word. It comes really amid growing frustration, I think, in the business community generally about the slow or lack of 
progress between the UK and the rest of the EU in coming up with a deal on what is going to replace EU membership for the UK once Brexit happens. And it's less than nine months away. It is indeed. Well, that's it for this week. On that rather depressing note, all that's left for me to do is to thank Martin here in the studio, Laura in Dublin, and our guest Andrea Enria from the EBA. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Don't forget, we're still taking feedback from you on what you think of our podcasts. Do go to ft.com slash podcast feedback or look at the show notes at the bottom of this podcast. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.